Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Obviously we need you to put your hands in your pockets and join us on patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. It's the easiest bit of activism you can do once a month. And for the price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone, you get access to all of our podcasts as quickly as we can turn them around, including a brilliant conversation we had in the last couple of hours with Konstantin Gordiev in Denver, Colorado. And that's out right now alongside all of our back catalogue of over 1,300 podcasts in one consolidated feed, so you never miss an episode. The Echo Chamber's had huge growth in the last few months, and I want to say thank you to everybody who's listening and sharing and liking. But independent media costs money, and we believe in the pay-it-forward model. We think Patreon is the way forward, so I don't have to do live reads for mattresses or the government of Ireland. And we certainly won't be taking any editorial control from people who are concerned about corporate interests. So if you like what we do, you want to keep it free, free for everyone, you can pay it forward right now by clicking that link one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Martin, we're back speaking about events globally. Uh, we've been covering a lot lately. Someone said to me yesterday that, they, that um, they couldn't keep up with the coverage because of our recent stuff that we did on e- in Ecuador, El Salvador and uh, the madman in Argentina. Yeah, um, that's still the best explainer. If you're, if you're a novice to, to the area, that's still the best explainer you're going to get in 40, in 40 minutes, Tony. Yeah, well, Nicholas Stalial from El País joins us regularly enough, and it was, but this was a real whistle stop tour of what is happening in Latin and South America. I also want to plug uh, John Harris from the Guardian um, spoke with us yesterday, and uh, it was it was kind of different than we were, than the normal conversations with John. We went a bit broader, and we, but I really missed my our old friend Don Foster at the time because Don always called um, greetings from Plague Island when, during COVID. Um, but when we were talking the other day, she she made the point. Um, John John made the point that the plague is just a new plague now of austerity and inequality and causing all sorts of other troubles. So, look, give it a listen. Anyway, John's John's a great uh, commentator and he's a bit of crack as well. Anyway, look, we are delighted. And I mean, absolutely delighted to be joined for the first time on the podcast by um, lead researcher and author of the report. And it's a very difficult report, 73 pages of a, of the massacres that have occurred on the Yemen-Saudi Arabia border carried out predominantly on Ethiopian asylum seekers. Uh, Nadia Hardman of Human Rights Watch joins us. Nadia, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Really Uh, cool to be here. I have to start by saying it is a really difficult read. Um, some of the, the details. And I want to, so I want to go straight to the personal. You've had to interview a lot of these people. Yeah, when, yeah, no, I interviewed every single person that um, that gave what, us testimony for this report. Can I be really um, selfish and ask you, what was, how did it make you feel when you had to talk to these people? Because I know, we, we, I just reading some of the, the things they said, it would impact me and you had to actually then read that and then try and get a night's sleep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, to a degree, you rely on the fact that, you know, you, you, I'm pretty good at separating um, my work and personal life. Um, but obviously there are times when it really uh, seeps through. And I would say that for this research, it's the hardest research I've ever done and, and possibly will ever do. I don't think I'll ever accuse Saudi Arabia of crimes against humanity again. Who knows? <laughs> um, but uh, it was really hard. I think what's hardest is, you know, in a lot of situations when I'm interviewing people, they're in some level of safety by the time I do the interview. I the I mean I think every single person I talk to 
um, were survivors of mass killings, were deeply traumatized at the time. So you're having to do this interview that's traumatic and difficult, um, you know, and then knowing that they're stuck. You know, most of the people I sp spoke to are stuck inside Yemen, limited medical assistance and um, heavily injured. Um, you know, some have lost one or more of their limbs. So you sort of finish the interview and, you know, you're, you, you sort of come away knowing that they're in the most dire situation, potentially considering trying to cross the border again because they just have no real way out. Um, so that that stayed with me. So I, I mean, look, we have like psychosocial support and psychologists available at Human Rights Watch. It's super well set up for that. And I, I do like some extreme sports that probably helps. Um, I rock climb and kite surf and that. I don't know what that does, but it definitely helps. Yeah. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, uh, I do keep the the stories in my head, and I'll probably need a big fat rest after this. Nadia, can you tell us exactly what happened? Yeah. Look, I mean, I've been documenting this this route, this migration route, which really is is not well known. I'd say globally, the eastern route from the Horn of Africa through Yemen to Saudi Arabia. You know, people are trying to access jobs in Saudi Arabia. And there are a lot of jobs there, like over 750,000 Ethiopians actually live and work in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, the majority of people that go on this route are Ethiopian. Over 90% um, are Ethiopians, which is why it's only Ethiopians that we're talking about in the report. And I mean, the route itself is, is just horrifying. I could write several reports plenty just on the abuses people face being trafficked and smuggled from Ethiopia to Djibouti crossing you know <clears throat> the Gulf of Aden in cramped you know unseaworthy vessels um, getting to Aden and then smuggled and trafficked through Yemen which obviously is a conflict zone previously um, to the border with Saudi Arabia and then, you know, trying to cross in groups um, to to try and access job opportunities, as I said. Now, what we've documented in the past are border killings by Saudi border guards of Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers trying to cross. But, you know, since 2014, we've documented kind of sporadic, occasional, infrequent killings. Um, but really, this report is of mass killings, of widespread, systematic attacks use of explosive weapons. People told me they were fired on by mortar projectiles. They saw rocket launchers mounted on top of Saudi vehicles um, or shot at at close range. So generally people traveling in large groups of like up to 300 people were attacked with the explosive weapons. And if it was like a group of 10 or less, um, people were shot at, um, you know, and the really insidious, I mean, all of it is insidious and you know, frankly, quite sadistic. It, there were interactions as well by Saudi border guards with Ethiopian migrants. So, for example, survivors of explosive weapons attacks were then sometimes taken to awful detention centers inside Saudi Arabia um, or, you know, asked which limb of their body they wanted shot and then that limb would be shot. I spoke to one man, a 17-year-old boy, who um, survived an explosive weapon attack, and the Saudi border guards came to him and said, and forced him to rape a girl survivor. And, you know, when I was asking him the question, you know, did, did you participate in the rape? And he said, yes, I did it to survive. He then told me he'd witnessed the summary execution of a man who refused. Um, and then he said, you know, and the girl survived because they agreed to be raped. So just 
awful stuff. Yeah, I mean, rape as a weapon of war, we're used to hearing about. Like, our, our, I know that sounds terrible to say, but like we've um, we've covered one of, one of our friends is in in uh, in Kiev working with um, on the the international cr- criminal uh, crimes that are happening, war crimes that are happening, and he's documenting them there. So we know of these things, but to hear that that this is playing out in what is supposed to be, you know. Um, the, the right to international protection. Everybody has the. Everybody has this right. And I'm, I'm also aware people are probably going to say to me, Tony, look, you've you've covered what's happening in Fortress Europe. You've covered what happens in in the Mediterranean. You know, you know what happened to that that boat that we know the Greek the Greek Coast Guards um a couple. But this is this is opening fire. And what what you've documented are hundreds. And we have to say it must be thousands if 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 because this is all we know of Nadia. Yeah. Yeah. So look, we were really conservative in our numbers. Um, you know, the methodology for counting is super difficult when you're asking survivors, you know, how many bodies did you see? Um, how many did you count? And they're really only the, the, the numbers that you can verify. Were a lot of them men or is it more predominantly women, children trying to get across? It's, um, look, the, the route is quite gendered. Um, as roots go, what that means is it has a higher than normal, I mean, I don't know what normal is, proportion of women and in, in kids. Um, so the majority of people told me that the majority of their group were women and kids. And you can see this because we've, we've analyzed a ton of open source um, videos. And you can see these groups, you know, single file trying to cross this treacherous mountainous area. And you can see there are a lot of women and kids um, and uh, extremely easy to distinguish that between, say, armed combatants by the Saudi on the Saudi side. Um, You know, these are unarmed civilians um, and definitely not, you know, combatants. And you've spent a lot of time verifying that information. I mean, a lot of work has gone into verifying that information. Yeah, and uh, you look because we can't access this border, right? Well, like, we can't get there. We don't have access. We don't have permission to or a visa to go to North Yemen. Um, so what we try to do is bring to life an area of the world that people just don't know about or can't see, right? So what we've like, well, what my colleagues in the Digital Investigations Lab did was spend, you know, months analyzing kilometers of satellite imagery plotting exactly where the Saudi border guard bases are all along that border, um, where the migrant trail is, what it looks like, looking at videos, verifying them, geolocating where the, the killings are taking place. We found burial sites that have increased in size over the period of my research. Um, so really, like all of that visual evidence then helps us say the Saudis knew or should have known that they were firing on migrants and asylum seekers. Um, And I I, I guess just to add as well, every time I interviewed someone, I would ask them, can you send me a picture or a video of, you know, anything that you have? And and what they would usually send me was the video or picture of their injury. Mm. And we sent that to forensic experts to get analyzed. And they came back and said, you know, that the images were consistent with blast trauma, um, you know, which confirms again, explosive weapons use. This is, um, but like, I mean, uh, so just to outline the, the journey, people coming from Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa, there's, um, there's a civil war. There's also problems with, um, with crop failure. There's problems with, with hunger. Hunger, we've covered it. Nothing kills like hunger, folks. It's, um, it is the great killer. Then into Yemen, which is 
also a decimated war zone. I mean, we've covered um, Martin, our friend Will Holden, who's in Syria at the moment. He he went to Yemen when there was the cholera outbreak. You know, we know of the difficulties that they're facing there. There's no safe passage here, and yet there's jobs there. So how how do we? How does the international community react to this? Is clearly like this is we see we see it in the time. You know, uh, we don't want to give sucker to the human traffickers, but this is this is a human traffic network from the Horn of Africa running straight to 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 Saudi Arabia. Yeah, this this is, and I think there's you know been an unwillingness to sort of engage on this issue, or maybe a lethargy, a fatigue. I don't know what it is because it, it is hard. It is hard to clamp down on you know smuggling and trafficking routes that are you know criminal and operating, you know, really like a well-oiled machine. Um, You know, who do you hold accountable and how? But, you know, one thing that I think this report highlights is that you're talking about direct state officials firing explosive weapons and shooting unarmed Ethiopian migrants and asylum seekers at at an international border. It's a clear case of human rights abuse, right? Um, And what we've really tried to do is is amp up the media coverage really to to because we know that what may work may have an impact is the reputational damage for Saudi Arabia. I mean Saudi Arabia just enjoys like a clear level of impunity. Um, we've seen that since 2018 for for the just brutal clear killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's so successful at deflecting attention by spending billions on its sports washing. So what you know, we're just trying to really ram home just the level of brutality and violence that people are experiencing and continuing to experience to this day. Um, so that hopefully the international community, governments, states, I mean, they have a menu of options um, that we set out in the report. There is, there are things that governments can do. It's just whether or not they have the willingness to do that. You've mentioned the sports washing. You've mentioned how they're buying their way out of out of bad publicity is this enough is this enough to i mean honestly at the scale they're killing people and i mean it's murder they're murdering people at that scale can governments keep ignoring i mean they've ignored an awful lot of really bad stuff well, they, s- they, they said to? they said something about you know well i think it was president biden at the time said you know there'd be a reckoning for the murder um of jamal khashoggi when it was a with a bone saw folks they cut him up and but there was no reckoning and there was no we have our own Taoiseach said when he would when he engaged with the Saudi thing that he would raise human rights and when we got the minutes to the to the meetings that took place they never raised them not a word was was said so you know it's people are playing to the gallery back home but when when they step on stage they want to talk to MBS as he as they like to call him nothing gets called out uh, Nadia no it's it's um I mean it's I mean it's disheartening disappointing and doesn't cover it you know you are talking about a country that consistently abuses its own citizens. You know, the the you know, execution level of, of Saudi citizens has increased dramatically under MBS. Um, you know, of course, there's no has been no accountability for Jamal Khashoggi. Um, you know, there's generally oppression of political opposition, as we know. Um, so 
it's not a stretch to to imagine what it's doing on its border with migrants and asylum seekers. I mean, it's been detaining migrants and asylum seekers in just the most horrifying conditions for for a long time anywhere uh, anyway. And we've documented unlawful killings in those places as well. So, you know, the the fact that the international community turns its head away and just, you know, I think it's partly because it doesn't know how. Um, to hold a country like Saudi Arabia accountable, even though, as I said, there are a menu of options, there are sanctions, there's a, you know decisions not to participate in particular sporting events. There, there's there's Leahy laws, surely that the US have, um, which you know say if if yeah. if that they, they will you know. <laughs> And I just want to stress this to people. So, so if there's breaches of human rights laws, the US can act and say, well, "These are the legal laws. These are our standards that we hold dear, and we can take steps." And you know, they're not even being suggested. It's not even been um, kind of really discussed. I mean, you guys are calling for a, a full UN investigation. Yeah, uh, we're calling. Yeah. Exactly. We're calling for a UN-backed investigation. So we tried to be kind of broad in terms of, you know, what that could look like. We didn't want to say like a Human Rights Council uh, resolution should be passed. So we were, you know, a UN-backed investigation, whatever that might look like. The most important thing is that it fits certain standards of independence, which is why when Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia announced um, their intention to launch an investigation, I think a couple of days ago in the wake of our report, I mean, you know, that's not going to fulfill international independence standards. It just isn't. Saudi Arabia hasn't conducted a single investigation on abuses against uh, migrants that others, as well as us, have alleged in the last decade. So I don't see this as any different. I mean, Saudi Arabia ha- has been on notice about these crimes for a long time. Like last year, the UN special procedures, the in- an independent, you know, independent rapporteurs that work for the UN, wrote a letter to Saudi Arabia putting out similar widespread and systematic. Um, allegations of killings. And Saudi Arabia responded in March of this year, basically saying, we have no evidence of this. This is baseless. Um, We can't expect an uh, an independent investigation by Saudi Arabia. So we need something. I mean, like the victims need justice and redress. I mean, the one thing that people say to me constantly when I interview them is, please tell the world this is happening. And please help us make it, you know, please make it stop. Um, People are stranded, dying, injured, um, and it will continue if there's a signal that this kind of behavior can be met with an impunity. And actually, that is the signal that has been given year on year is this is going to be met with impunity. Nadia, you've, as you said, you've spoken to the people yourself. You know that side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, are you getting blowback? Are you getting interference? Are you getting lots of men saying you're wrong, Nadia? <sighs> I think a lot of women all the time get <laughs> just saying you're wrong. We should um, come in and say, well, actually. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, what I've had some, I've had some bots, let's say, on Twitter, um, you know, tell me that it's all fake news. Um, I mean, we've, I think, been pretty um, rigorous in our methodology and evidence This is that this is um, uh, all very true. Um, I mean, the blowback is, yeah, I mean, you know, the Saudi Arabia has said these allegations are, or, you know, the, the facts that we've put forward are baseless. Um, but we wrote to Saudi Arabia over a month ago and, you know, we sent them a long list of questions and, you know, gave them a right to reply. It was pretty on brand for Saudi Arabia not to reply to us. Um, but, you know, they've had notice of this. It's their choice not to engage. Um, but that's just consistent with how Saudi Arabia operates. And you won't be going to the embassy to give the questions in in person, Martin. 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 I think. I think. I think. I'd. 
Um, can, I, if there was ever a meeting, I think it would be a neutral place somewhere. <laughs> can, can I point out just a couple of things, Nadia, I'd like to get your thoughts on? Obviously, we want more cooperation internationally. But, you know, the, the new deal, the normalization deal and, and the deals that, that the US are involved themselves with um, Saudi Arabia means more weapons for Saudi Arabia, means more, uh, more arms sales from the US, and it effectively makes them an, a NATO ally if not a member of NATO. I mean, there are, this is, this is go, only going one way, despite the political pressure and the bad reputational damage that we're saying. It, it, it's, you said disheartening. I would say um, cash rules more than, uh, than, than, than human rights at this, at this point. And is that a fair assessment? I think it's a completely fair assessment. I think, you know, we're so, at such an um, amor- amoral impasse right now and you know it's terrifying it's frightening if crimes like these go completely you know fall on deaf ears then you know i mean sure i've seen some you know great indication in the last couple of um days but frankly unless there's any kind of implementation it's just hot air um you know it's 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 a disaster it's a disaster and it won't help any global i i believe the international community to not respond because we don't respond to this. I mean, we're, we're not responding to other situations of human rights abuse. And I, I, I say that, you know, as a British citizen, you know, coming from a country that frankly is despicable in its um, asylum record right now. Um, so it's not like we have a... You're, you're a, not a fan of Small Boats Week? Oh, right. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to comment on, on stuff like that anymore. It's just, it's just... It's just mortifying. It's an asylum ban, um, you know. And Europe just outsources its um, obligations to third countries. That's its practice. Ah, no. Frontex um, do great work in 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 um, making sure there's there's a pushback, and we don't want it's it's horrendous, folks. It's absolutely horrendous. We spoke to Giovanni Fontana on this, and there's still no justice for Fatmata Martin. She was yeah, shot. Yeah. As she was shot crossing the the, the border um, from Greece. She was pregnant and she was a young woman starting her life and she was shot by a border guard and there's no justice. Her husband is, is still fighting for justice. They've been given assistance finally by the um, by the authorities, but it just shows you that when this sort of stuff happens, Nadia, there's no... Um, the, the, people just move on. Uh, I know, I know. It's, I, and I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm constantly, I'm, you know, willing to hear answers from your, <laughs> from your audience because I just like, how do we change the, you know, the, the narrative right now? It's so toxic when we talk about people mm. on the move. Like, where did we we lost that battle? I guess a long time ago, and it's not helped in this situation. Unfortunately, no one cares about um, what's happening on this route, or, or I, I imagine one of the reasons why it's not been in the spotlight is because it's Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Ethiopia, right? We're talking about black African migrants. Exactly. They're not white Europeans or, or you know, um, Ukrainians trying to get to, trying to, get to, to Europe. It's a different narrative every time, depending on where you're from. It's like we have a good and a bad refugee. And it's just, um, it's just quite frankly, quite disgusting um, because international standards are international everywhere. We know that. And, you know, I just... I, I, I mean, I obviously I wouldn't do this work if I didn't believe that somewhere we were we we had a chance at some kind of redress or accountability. Um, you know, so I, I believe we can try, but it is depressing when you look at the facts and and how many situations just aren't resolved. Um, we get some wins. We you know we do have some, but they're more sort of singular wins rather than anything systemic. Um, but uh, we, we'll continue trying, Tony. We'll continue. You have, you have to keep. There, you have to keep fighting. 
There are, there are a lot of places in the world where, as you've described, it's just awful. But I think Yemen in particular is the end of the world. And I think it gets very little traction for the horrific abuses that are going on in Yemen. And we all know it's actually happening, but it's much easier not to deal with it. We see a complicated picture and we don't want to call out who the villains are, who's the good guys, who's the bad yeah. guys. Nobody wants to do it. Nadia, thank you very much for having this conversation. We greatly appreciate that you come on and we greatly appreciate the work you do. Let us say that you do have wins and you do have wins and you do have great wins. And and just because they don't feel like a win, don't stop. Please don't stop. Keep it going. Thank you so much. Very kind words to finish with. Um, I just want to make one point for our uh, our Irish audience. Uh, the one thing we could do uh, immediately is Ireland is boasting about we our budget surplus and how our effective our tax haven is at making money. Um, we're still not even meeting our 1% requirement on overseas development aid. We could do that in this budget. In a few weeks' time, the budget is coming up. Our government should go there immediately instead of this nonsense plan to do it by 2030. It's absolute nonsense. We can do it in overnight because we have the money even if it is ill-gotten gains, in my opinion. We, but we'll deal with that on another We'll deal with that on another podcast. Nadia, thanks so much for talking to us. We'll be back very soon, folks. We have um, more domestic issues in, in terms of our housing crisis, and we'll be covering those with you very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.